Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. I'm Bruce Daisley. It's a podcast about making work better. Hope you're well. Man, what with domestic responsibilities and the pressures of real life and being subscribed to pretty much every PlayStation 5 stock update, um, I'm finding everything pretty intense at the moment. I think everyone can rest a little bit easier when their family and relatives get vaccinated. So that's top priority. My grandmother's been done and my mum and dad are coming soon. A couple of things for you. I'm not sure I've mentioned here, but I've done a new Audible original podcast sort of audio book, and that's called No Office Required. It's free. In December, I spent a long time contacting a whole range of people from the likes of the author of Solo, Rebecca Seal, through to futurists, psychologists, architects, you name it, to find out the most effective way to do remote working. Like I say, it's free if you're an Audible subscriber. Um, I, I personally adore audiobooks. My Audible subscription, I think I said this like years and years ago, but my Audible subscription is one of my favourite things in the world. I'm currently re-listening to Humankind by Rutger Bremer and uh, and the Barack Obama audiobook, which strongly benefits from him narrating it. But if you are interested in getting going in audiobooks, in the show notes I've, I've listed some of my favourite recent listens as inspiration. Uh, Secondly, I was on Stephen Bartlett's Diary of a CEO podcast. I've listened to a lot of his podcasts. He was the founder of the Social Chain Media Agency. He's gone on his sort of blockbuster star at the top of the uh, podcast chart. I've met him a couple of times, actually, through various different things, and he invited me down. And so all of those things should have been me being aware and prepared. And it was only when I got to Old Street Tube that I remembered, oh, this is going to be a video interview. I had my full WFH garb on, sort of climate school strike T-shirt and Lululemon top, or what I miss. Anyway, there's been lovely feedback to that in the discussion, and we discuss why work culture isn't really feeling right at the moment, what any of us could do about it. Also, as I used to work at Twitter, we discuss... Donald Trump being banned from the platform. Again, there's a link to that whole episode below. On with today's episode. So at the moment, I'm in the middle of writing a book on the myth of resilience. And what's the myth of resilience? The the myth of resilience is that it's an individual strength that some of us have and some of us don't. And uh, I've been immersed in 
really the most wonderful research. When you sit and you plan a book out, and if you've ever got an interest in doing a book, I've written everything I learned about writing a book in a PDF, and it's on my website. Or link in to me if you want that. But anyway, as as I wrote as I wrote the plan for this book, the, the research for it has just been mind-boggling and extraordinary, sort of immersed in some incredible academic papers. But along the way, there's been people who I've been researching and I've thought, oh, I'd love to chat to them. And secondly, I've thought, oh, this would make a good podcast. So today's guest is one of those people. It's Dr. Damien Scarf. He teaches at the University of Otago in New Zealand. I saw him do a, a short and really impactful TED Talk, which he's linked to in the show notes. Very much like uh, Dr. Jill Bolt-Taylor's TED Talk. I don't know if you ever saw that wonderful lecture about her having a stroke. And Damien uses his psychology to diagnose what went wrong with him when he was studying. So he describes how he thought the the way to get things done was to cut himself off from people. As he cut himself off from more and more people, he, he ended up feeling worse. And I think it sort of uh, it had an, an injurious effect on his health. He says in his TED Talk, he says, it's our connections with those around us, the groups we belong to, that bolster our resilience. The number of groups we belong to not only bolsters our resilience, but is also protective against developing depression, can be curative of existing depression and helps us prevent depression relapse. Even when you're old, groups are critical. The more groups we belong to, the slower our cognitive decline. And this is the fundamental thing that comes through in a whole load of the research I've been doing at the moment. But the more groups we're connected to, the more it enhances us. It's sort of sometimes termed social identity by the, the people who study it. I'll tell you what it reminded me of. I saw something by Sean Mendes, incredibly uh, talented Canadian pop star. What Sean Mendes stands called? Mendos? Mendes? Mendels? Anyway, Sean was talking about his relationship with Camilla Cabello and what a beautiful couple they make. And he was talking just before Christmas. He said, I don't know if it was something that was a me thing or a men thing, but I think for seven years I was on such a speedy path down one way with blinders on and I wasn't keeping in touch with my family and friends. But when I landed with Camilla, immediately she had her family around her more. She's all about family and friends and it really made me think like I should call my mum. I felt a bit alone out there, and she changed that for me. So it really struck me that, because I think a lot of us find ourselves disconnecting from from friends and family, or we find our social groups get smaller. And if you knew that the more connections you had to wider groups, and you knew that that was the cause of your good health and your resilience and your sense of being able to cope with life, then I think you'd probably choose to organize your life in different ways and and prioritize different things you know how many of us allow friendships to stagnate dissipate we don't put the energy into them and if you knew that actually that was about self-preservation and as much as happiness then i think it would change your perspective so could our strength come from our connections that's the question that i think dr damien scarf is about to answer for you here's my discussion with dr damien scarf 
Damien, uh, so pleased to talk to you. I was I was really swept away with your TED talk. It, to me, it reminded me a little bit of the the TED talk by Jill Bolt Taylor, the the one about um, the brain scientist who had a stroke, and so she was able to diagnose exactly what her own personal condition had been. And yours was similar to me, in, in a clearly in a different field, but the way that you'd been able to apply your own learnings in psychology to, to your own situation was was compelling so um i'm thrilled to to talk to me today I, I guess to kick off i wonder if you could just introduce yourself properly for the listeners yep so my name is dr damien scarf and i am a senior lecturer in the department of psychology at the university of otago in dunedin all the way down in new zealand covid's been treating you well i hope yeah so we've it's almost like we're in not quite a utopia. We still have a few things pop up, but generally, I guess, relative to the rest of the world, it is a utopia in terms of containing the virus. Pleased to hear it. So, so listen, I, I stumbled upon your uh, your TED talk when I was um, was when I was studying really about well being and the impact of our social environment on our well being. And I guess you know, in the first instance, I was really intrigued. If you could take us through. The, the self-diagnosis that you observed in, in that TED Talk of when you were first, you were studying at the University of Otago, can you sort of describe to us, um, I guess, the pressures on you and how you reacted to that? Yeah, so I failed um, high school, so I couldn't get into uni for a few years, so I spent a year um, on the benefit, and then when I finally made it in, um, I think initially I was just kind of focused on passing um, I didn't really have any aspirations to do much beyond that. And so in first year, I passed with a mix of kind of C's and low B's. Maybe the academic environment and the kind of pressure of university, the idea of doing well and working hard. Um, in second year, um, I started to study a bit more. And as I studied more, I kind of started to remove, I guess, the groups that I was part of. So in second year, that consisted of um, giving up rugby or not hanging out with my mates and then as the years progressed I went into third year um, and the groups cut down again so I was studying more and therefore I wasn't um, part of any kind of social groups or recreational groups um, and then it kind of culminated in I guess not hanging out with family so not going to family birthdays or really spending any time um, with my family and so over that time as the groups cut down the anxiety that I was experiencing increased, so I got worse. Once uni kind of ended and I had no study to do, uh, I kind of, yeah, I got to a place where I had to go um, get some help. So, right. you know, removing all those groups had really made me, I guess, less resilient in a way. And then once uni had kind of ended, all the pressures of uni kind of ended, um, I entered quite a bad depression. So not having any social groups and not having, I guess, any university work to kind of keep me distracted leads to quite a hole. Yeah, it took yeah, a long time, I guess, to build up um, or to build those groups back. It's one of those funny things where it's almost like you get out of practice of, hmm. kind of socialising and finding people to hang out with. And once you've removed them all, yeah, it takes quite a process to kind of get them back and to find new groups to be a part of and new places to kind of feel um, that sense of belonging and acceptance. In your talk, you were able to throw the lens of your psychology and, and the understanding over the top over this. And, you know, you, you very much describe uh, the situation where groups contribute to our well-being. And I think specifically the, th the stages that you've deliberately gone through there are saying you removed yourself from this group, then you removed yourself from this group, then you removed. And, and 
I think you were, you're explicitly saying that the more groups we're part of, it actually it does what it, it gives us in a yeah, it gives us lots of things. I mean, that's one of the funny things. When I was going through that process in undergrad, I thought I was like cracking the code. I thought I had found this kind of perfect way to be really efficient with my time, uh, kind of under the premise that, you know, groups didn't provide me with much, um, that more time studying was beneficial and that groups didn't, um, or well-being in general didn't contribute to kind of my academic performance. Um, and then... Yeah, once I finished my undergrad and did a bit of postgrad, I happened upon uh, the social psychologist in the department. So up until that point, I was largely doing kind of animal behavior and kind of neuroscience. And I sat down with the social psychologist, um, who is a lovely Northern Irish man. We started talking about kind of my issues because I'd been in this class when I was an undergrad. um, And I actually wasn't able to complete his class because I was admitted to hospital. And so we kind of sat down and we started talking about some of the research he had done with the Spirit of New Zealand, which is like a voyage for youth and around the importance of groups. And all of a sudden it kind of was very revealing because I kind of thought back through my undergrad and kind of saw that I had gone, I guess, in the opposite direction to what the research would suggest that I could do, that, you know, Losing all those groups, um, you know, removes a lot of meaning. You know, groups provide us with a lot of meaning in terms of our roles and what we do and how we contribute and and give to others. Um, That kind of sense of acceptance that we get from groups, that sense of belonging, so the idea that we've got a place and a people um, that accept us for who we are and that allow us to express ourselves. Um, And just those kind of two factors... You know, I never really thought about groups, I guess, in that kind of way. Um, going through undergrad, I just thought about my time and how I could most efficiently use my time. Um, and that was really to my detriment, I guess. Um, not really. So, so along the way, yeah, so along the way, you mentioned the spirit of New Zealand. So this is the second half of the TED Talk. So so firstly, you've diagnosed that your own personal well-being was being somehow... Um, was being damaged, was being, um, wasn't in a good place by the fact that you were feeling estranged from the groups that you've previously felt part of, or you'd, you'd elected to remove yourself from them. And then you talk, um, about this, um, this boat, the, is it the, is the boat called the spirit of New Zealand or the spirit of adventure? Uh, Yeah. Uh, so, so the, it's one of these tall ships, right? And and describe to me the intervention that you've mentioned there that your um, that your colleague and uh, had had created on that, or the study that they'd done, because you you wrote a paper on this. Yeah, so we've written we've written a few papers on this. So the Spirit is yeah, it's a tall ship, so it's a ship that runs um, youth voyages. So these aren't unique to New Zealand. There's a few in different places dotted around the world, and so they take around 40 adolescents. So the adolescents are drawn from different parts of New Zealand. So the, the premise is that they don't know each other um, prior to kind of joining the voyage. And it's a 10-day voyage. And over the course of that voyage, the ostensible kind of aim is to learn how to uh, sail the ship. And on the first day of the voyage, they're assigned to watch groups. So these are the social groups that they'll be part of for the voyage. So they're groups of 10. Um, and then over the course of the voyage, their watch group 
um, goes to different parts of the ship and kind of completes different tasks. And the ship is obviously not overly comfortable, so they're sleeping in bunks um, in kind of cramped quarters. Uh, seasickness is common, so, um, you know, the rough seas of the first few days um, for kids, lots of whom are drawn from the city, um, they struggle with that. And then what we kind of see or what we kind of analysed over the, the course of the voyage, so one is resilience, so their um, ability to adapt and deal with challenge. Um, and so we, we find really clear evidence that the voyage has a positive effect on resilience. So not surprisingly, spending 10 days out at sea um, builds their resilience, their ability to deal with challenges um, and their ability to kind of have, I guess, a positive view of themselves and their ability to um, overcome um, the stresses and strains that happen to them. And then that, and that lasts. So that's probably the first key point is that it doesn't just um, – increased resilience in the short term, we followed those youth up nine months after the voyage and those benefits still held. So they still had higher levels of resilience um, than they came into the voyage with. The question, I guess, is how or why is resilience maintained? So obviously the voyage is gone, so the voyage is nine months ago, and we we're actually able to predict that kind of maintenance of resilience by measures of belonging, so measuring the degree to which they felt a sense of belonging with their watch group. So using questions like how accepted they feel um, by other members of the group, um, and whether they feel like they belong to the group, and that predicts the maintenance. So it's their relationships with their watch group and the, the feelings they get and the meaning they get from that group um, that holds or maintains the resilience over the long term. I mean, it's really interesting. I, I found myself, um, after watching your TED Talk, I watched a couple of people who'd been on the boat or been on various voyages of this. They've done little videos that they recorded. I think you're not allowed technology, are you? Yeah. And you're not allowed branded devices. So so they must have got footage from somewhere else. But there's, this uh, one, one girl had created, one, one woman, young woman had created a video diary. So I'm not sure how she would have done that. But it was really interesting to watch it because the, the way that you evoked it was very much the way that she describes this. Seems sort of... Um, you know, they're amongst strangers. It becomes immensely immersive. <laughs> it's one of those funny things where if I applied to do an experiment uh, with those kind of, um, you know, put them on a boat, yeah. send them out to sea, they can't really get off the boat. You know, it requires like a helicopter. So it's, you know, only serious. You get ethical approval. You can remove them. Ethical approval would be a nightmare. They'd never let me do it. <laughs> um, and so the, the spirit and boats in general provide... It's really something that's hard to recreate, um, at least over those 10 days. So obviously you can form that same connection with groups, but it's typically over a much longer period of time. But 10 days, 24 hours a day, you know, rough seas, no social media. And so the key there is that the groups that you would normally, I guess, um, lean on, you can't access. So you can't call your parents um, and you can't kind of talk to your mates at school. And, and that's key because that means that then you look to others around you. So you look to your watch group for that support. And I think that's a really key part of the process is that initially, obviously, they're strangers. It's really difficult, whether you're an adult or an adolescent, it's quite difficult to go into those kind of new groups and feel comfortable. And most of us probably revert to looking at our phone or doing other things. In this case, they don't have that option. 
And the funny, you, you do see this amazing, so when you talk to the crew on board these boats, there's this amazing switch from the first day, you've got 40 youth standing on a wharf, looking at their shoes, not wanting to talk to one another. And then on the last day, you've got 40 youth who are literally crying because they have to leave one another. Amazing. Amazing. And it's 10 days, you know, so it's just this miraculous kind of change in the boat and the context that that provides, you know, that feeling of being out on the water, those feelings of getting sick. Um, we actually found some evidence that the worse the weather, the higher the gain in resilience. So the idea that the more um, difficult it was, you know, the more they're kind of relying on their group for support, you know, the rougher the seas and the worse the weather, um, the more wow. they kind of fuse with that group um, and really lean on that group for support. So now bring your psychology to bear here. So what, what are we witnessing here? This resilience is forged by what? By them having a shared identity with the people that they're with or by them feeling like a sense of social kinship with the people they're with? As you're a psychologist, interpret for me what you're witnitessing there so this is really so so it's the identity is the key so they identify as a member of this watch group and and part of that is that they you know what is the watch group what's the watch group about you know what does that identity kind of consist of and in this case that identity consists of a group of people who are resilient you know they can take swims around a boat in freezing cold water at six o'clock in the morning. They can, you know, work together to raise the sails. You know, they can, you know, keep watch at two o'clock in the morning. You know, they can deal with seasickness. They can deal with being out on a boat in the middle of nowhere. You know, so it's the identity of that watch group and kind of what that watch group means or what that identity is, is kind of what's key here. You know, that identity is built around this yes. group that is resilient and this group that overcomes struggle and this group that leans on each other for support. And so that's the kind of key. The identity is, you know, identities are important and group identities provide us with meaning and purpose and all these other things. Um, but it's also important to think about what that identity consists of, you know, what are the norms of that group? What is that group kind of built around? What are the values of those groups? Here's an interesting thing for me. I was watching um, a bit of reality TV the other day. <laughs> Forgive me, there's a relevance to this. <laughs> you know that feeling when you watch a series of reality TV and, um, you know, the, the first, they're all put into the house or whatever. I was watching The Circle on Netflix, which is like the sort of catfish meets uh, Big Brother it's mm -hmm. idea. They're all in, in these... Um, in these units communicating only digitally. Anyway, um, someone, someone arrived in the show two or three, two days later. And the interesting thing is they all assert to each other that that person is different to them mm. because their experience is different. And I was like, wow, this is such a vivid illustration of how our identity can be so utterly subjective it can be just defined by shared experience you know there's there's no reason whatsoever that this person is different and and i wonder if that's relevant to what you're saying because yeah. on, on on the boat here blue watch their experience is almost identical to red watch and almost identical to yellow watch the only difference is they've got some shared moments where mm. they can joke about that time that someone fell over or joke about that time that someone fell asleep is mm. that right is that yeah. these things are almost trivial 
Yeah, I mean, that's where the, so the social identity work, that's where it came out of. It came out of this, what they call the minimal group paradigm, which is, you know, if you create groups around something that's, you know, almost meaningless. So in the lab, we might bring people in and get them to um, view art and try and categorize different types of art. And then we'll put them in groups based on the type of art that they liked more. And so a completely arbitrary, not important characteristic to create the group. And then they'll instantly adopt behaviors, you know, that, that emphasize that difference between their group, so the in-group and the out-group. And they'll do that based on minimal features. So the most basic thing, so categorizing people by something that they don't really care about and just them knowing that they're part of this group is enough to kind of create that in-group, out-group um, dynamic. So fascinating then that, you know, that that which at its core is just about really finding some reason to forge affiliation with other people. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. it's so astonishing then that, you know, nine months after this boat trip, these people still feel a sense of resilience from this identity, from this shared identity they've, with people that they've, they've fostered. It's, it's sort of remarkable how the human brain gives them that strength by knowing that these other people like them out there. So separate from, I guess, the social identity stuff, there's a group that has this idea of the belonging hypothesis. And so this idea that our brains are wired to you know, find groups um, and identify or, or develop a sense of belonging with those groups. And I think it really does tap or show just how, I guess, innate that drive really is. You know, that from very young, you know, we really seek to find groups and seek to find others, I guess, that are like us. And we, have, we feel great comfort in knowing um, that there's others like us. You know, that's what I guess a lot of the mental health campaigns are based on is this idea of making people feel like they're not the only ones um, that have a certain trait. And, I, and, yeah, it's amazing the level of comfort that that provides people. Um, and I guess the idea that people can feel that belonging, not just with people that they've met or groups that they've met, but also kind of at other levels, you know, we feel we might feel a sense of belonging with a group, with people that we've never met, but there's some feature of that group, whether it be, I guess, a sports team or something else that we identify with and it becomes, you know, this really important part of who we are. So if you're then applying this now, so, you know, outside of New Zealand, we're all in these wretched lockdown situations Mm -hmm. where the tribe that we used to feel part of Mm -hmm. has been, um, we've been separated from. Is, is there anything that we could learn? Firstly, are these groups as potent when they're done remotely? And secondly, is there anything that we could be learning from, from this sort of social identity work to make us stronger? Yeah, so the, so the question of whether the groups are more potent is a really interesting one. Um, you know, it's hard to know. We're never directly compared, I guess, online groups, but I think it might come down to maybe kind of what the behaviour is like in that group. I could imagine that groups that are formed online, you know, there's probably AA groups that are formed online or groups around addiction that are formed online. And I think when people are probably vulnerable in groups, it probably makes online groups potentially um, as beneficial when there's some sense of, of identity or some kind of shared purpose that yeah. might hold the same benefits but it's pretty difficult to substitute that kind of physical proximity the idea that when you think about groups lots of the time we spend with groups we're not necessarily directly communicating with each other we're kind of more in like a shared space and 
that kind of time is hard to replicate in an online world. With respect to whether we can learn something from things like lockdown, I think it really comes down to how it's framed. So in New Zealand, it was framed as New Zealand being a team and the idea of that team is to try and prevent the spread of the virus. Um, and I think that is that really taps, I guess, that kind of group or identity aspect, this idea that the lockdown has some kind of meaning to it, that it's not just um, individuals being isolated for no reason, that there's, it's that there's this higher purpose or this higher goal that we're all kind of sharing um, a sense of responsibility for and it gives meaning to the lockdown and it gives meaning to what we're doing and it makes us feel like we're part of this group or this team um, that's trying to contain um, this virus. And I think the, the wording from leaders is, is critical. You know, they kind of create that kind of narrative about whether the lockdown is just another lockdown where we all have to sit at home um, and it's pointless or it doesn't feel like it serves a function. Um, or they can really present it as this kind of activity where, you know, we're doing something to help each other um, and to help the country. So if anyone is sitting there now thinking, how can I make the people around me more resilient? One of the solutions seems to be to encourage connections, to, mm-hmm. to find ways for people to, to not feel as alone. Is that mm-hmm. right? I mean, the key, so there's lots of different um, measures of identity. So there's lots of different ways we can kind of ask people um, how much they identify with the group or belong to the group. Um, and I think the key um, question or the question that, that I think is the most important, um, and that kind of gives an indication as to what behaviour is the most important, is the question around acceptance. So whether the people around us accept us for who we are. So whether they accept us for the good and the bad or perhaps parts of us that um, we hide from others. And I think that kind of unconditional acceptance um, is probably a key to, you know, building resilience and, you know, self-esteem and another of other positive attributes in those around us is that we need to give people a forum where they can be themselves and where there's no parts of themselves that they have to hide. Um, And that's, I think, what people could, could work on it. You know, that makes people vulnerable because it generally means that, you know, those people see that they can express themselves and they won't be judged. Um, I think that's kind of the key. Back with more of my discussion with Dr. Damien Scarf after this. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Now back to my discussion with Damien Scarf. As time's gone on, so obviously this TED Talk was a, f- a few years ago now, what have you, uh, how has your understanding of it expanded and what, have your, what has your work been subsequently? So my, um, so I've really started to think about uh, the workplace in that way. You know, as I've gotten older and my friends have moved away and work becomes, I guess, more central to what I kind of spend my day doing. Yeah. And the people within the workplace. And so I have and yeah, I formed really, really strong relationships with a couple of people um, in my workplace. Um, and that I think has been really important um, to me in that I spend a lot of time at work and having people in that context um, that I have that kind of relationship with. Yeah, really important. The other thing that I've started to understand is how difficult it is to find groups as you get a bit older. So when you're young, it's like they're everywhere. You know, you're in high school, yeah. you're in uni, there's cultural groups, there's sports groups, there's, there's, a, there's a plethora of groups that you could join. Um, and then as you get older and as I talk to older adults, so now I'm doing some work with um, older people, you see how difficult it is to find those groups. You see how isolated older people can sometimes feel um, and it's very difficult to for them to connect with other people uh, and so some of the I guess the positives in that is the emergence of things like men's sheds so sheds that are kind of workshops where um, older adults typically males um, have or, or create a community around kind of building things and doing things and I think that more things like that are kind of needed as we get older, especially once we retire, we can think about that as almost like a transition in identity. So we've got this workplace that we've been part of that we identify with, and then all of a sudden, you know, we don't have that anymore. And, you know, there's a real struggle for those people to find um, new places and new people to belong. And so something like Men's Sheds, I think, is really positive, this idea that it's community-driven and that it gives an older generation and a way to connect with each other and also to connect with younger people. And so, yeah, I guess I hope that things like that really take off, that people realise um, and the government realises um, and policy people realise how kind of important those things are, that, you know, if you want to improve the health of a population or you want to improve mental health, that those are the types of things that really need um, to be done. You know, the discussion since my TED Talk has really become a lot bigger in terms of really thinking about how we approach health and how our GP asks us about how we're doing and how much time we spend kind of focusing on, you know, diet and exercise, which are important, um, but they're not as important as social groups. And the research supports that. So the research shows that, you know, the doctor asking about whether you smoke and whether you drink, 
um, and what your weight is like are important questions, but more important than one that they never ask is about, you know, your social relationships and your groups. Yeah. And so my kind of purpose now or my view or scope has got a, a lot bigger. So now, you know, I'm really driven to try and make people aware and make the people that are in important positions aware of how investment in this area and asking people about this area would have kind of benefits, like massive benefits that, yeah, we're not going to realise unless there's kind of almost like a shift around how we view health. It's so fascinating, isn't it? Because, like, you know, the, the old truism that they're all we're all familiar with, you know, if, if you ask people their happiest and most satisfying time of their life, they'll inevitably talk about school. And, mm. you know... And and that was because we did feel this shared identity. We did feel like part of collective groups. And yet the tragedy of human experience seems to be we just struggle to recreate that as soon as we pass the age of, of the time that we're in education. It's, it's, it seems a real tragedy that we find it so difficult to connect with other people, especially as you say there, it's got such demonstrable health benefits. Mm. Yeah, it is amazing how, I mean, school workers provides this scaffold to those relationships. You know, the grudge turning up to school, but, you know, on reflection, you know, you realise that you've got to spend every day with your mates in this kind of context where, you know, the academic demands were kind of like a side issue and the main kind of purpose of your day was to kind of hang out with other people and have fun. And I think that's, yeah, it's kind of almost sad that at the time when you have that you don't really realize the importance of it and then when you come to an age where you realize the importance of it it's almost impossible to kind of recreate um, that kind of atmosphere it's this interesting kind of yeah reversal with the time when you have it you don't really appreciate it and then when you're out of it you think oh school was so fantastic it was so easy to um, kind of have those relationships and have those connections Damien, I'm, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to talk to you today. If anyone's interested in your work, the, the TED Talk is obviously where I'm going to direct them. But is there anything else that you'd suggest? No, I think the TED Talk is, I think it condenses the work that I do down in, in a way that I, I think almost communicates the, the keys from it. I think that has, the papers are, you know, theoretically interesting, but I think the TED Talk really gets at the main kind of thesis of the idea. And I hope, hopefully convinces other people about the importance of groups and the importance of ensuring that you know, we value the groups that we have and we realise, I guess, how valuable they are before we kind of depart from them. I'm so grateful for your time. Stay safe over there in New Zealand. Thank you, Damien. Just after I turned the tape off, I was telling him about the book I'm writing and he said, yeah, the thing about resilience is that people make out it's an individual strength, not a collective thing. Damn, that is exactly the quote I wanted but I didn't get it on tape. Precisely. I hope you found that beneficial. There's a couple of links to some of the things he talked about. His original talk, there's one of the video diaries of one of the people who went on the boat. All of it inspiring and really intriguing for me. Resilience is a group strength. It's not an individual strength. How fascinating. Um, As I'm sort of doing this and talking to more people, maybe I'll be fortunate enough to get some of the interviews on tape and I'll I'll try and play them out over the coming few months. But... um, I really appreciate you listening today. Thank you so much for joining. Like I say, if if you are interested in this or anything else, my newsletter goes out uh, every Tuesday afternoon. 
and uh, I'd love to have you subscribe to that. I've been Bruce Daisley. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.